An Exposition of the Book of John, A.W. Pink, Christ Comforting His Disciples. It is in the 14th chapter of John that the Lord Jesus really begins a paschal discourse, a discourse which for tenderness, depth, and comprehensiveness is unsurpassed in all the scriptures. The circumstances under which it was delivered need to be steadily borne in mind. This heart-melting address of Christ was given to the eleven on the last night before he died, affording a manifestation of him which has been strikingly likened to the glorious radiance of the setting sun, surrounded with dark clouds and about to plunge into darker, which fraught with lightning, thunder, and tempest, wait on the horizon to receive him. Most blessedly do his words here bring out the perfections of the God-man, any other man, even a man of superior strength of mind and kindness of heart, placed so far as he could be placed under Lord's circumstances, would have had his mind thrown into such a state of uncontrollable agitation, and most certainly would have been too entirely occupied with his own sufferings and anxieties to have any power or disposition to enter into and soothe the sorrows of others. But though completely aware of all that awaited him, Though feeling the weight of the awful load laid upon him, though tasting the bitter cup, which he must drain, he not only retained full self-possession, but took his deep and interest in the fears and sorrows of the apostles as if he himself had not been a sufferer. Instead of being occupied with what lay before himself, he spent the time in comforting his disciples. He loved them. Unto the end, during his public ministry and in his private intercourse with them, the apostles had heard repeated statements from his lips concerning his approaching sufferings and death. Statements, which appeared to us simple and plain, but which perplexed and amazed them. It is most charitable and perhaps most reasonable to conclude that his disciples regarded his reference to his coming passion as parables which were not to be understood literally, and that at any rate he could not mean anything inconsistent with his immediately restoring the kingdom to Israel. They were fully convinced that he was a Messiah, and their only idea in connection with the Messiah was that of an illustrious conqueror, a prosperous king. Therefore, whatever was obscure in their master's sayings must be understood in the light of these principles, and it is probable that their hopes had never risen higher than when they had seen him ride into Jerusalem amid the joyous acclamations of the multitudes, hailing him as the son of David. But right after his entry into Jerusalem, they had heard him speak of himself as a corn of wheat, which must fall into the ground and die. And this, at least, must have awakened dark forebodings. And as well, his conduct and sayings during the Passover supper, and what followed, must have deeply perplexed and distressed them. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, must have filled them with painful misgivings. He had said, Yet, a little while I am with you. You shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, Whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, This is indeed sufficient to fill them with anxiety and sorrow. They dearly loved him. The thought of him dying, and of their parting with him was unbearable. 
Moreover, they must have asked themselves, how can this be reconciled with his messiahship? Are we, after all, to give up our hope that this is he who would redeem Israel? And what is to become of us? We have forsaken all to follow him. Will he now forsake us, leaving us amid enemies, his sheep in the midst of wolves, to suffer the fierce malignity of his triumphant foes? Our Lord, who knew what was in man, was well aware of what was passing in the minds of his disciples. He knew how they were troubled, and what anxious, desponding, and despairing thoughts were arising in their hearts, and he could not but be touched with the feeling of their infirmities. There lay on his own mind a weight of anguish which no being in the universe could bear along with him. He could not have had the alleviation of sympathy. He must tread the winepress alone. They could not enter into his feelings, but he, the magnanimous one, could enter into theirs. There was room in his large heart for their sorrows as well as his own. He feels their griefs as if they were his own and kindly comforts those whom he knew were soon to desert him in the hour of his deepest sorrows. In all their afflictions, he was afflicted, and he shows in the address which he made to them that the Lord who anointed him to comfort those who mourn and to bind up the brokenhearted had indeed given to him the tongue of the learn, that he might speak a word in season to them who were weary. End quote. John Brown let not your heart be troubled. John 14.1 It was the sorrows of their hearts which now occupied the great heart of love. Troubled, they were. Deeply so. They were troubled at hearing that one of their numbers should betray him. John 13.21 They were troubled at seeing their master troubled in spirit. Chapter 13.21 Troubled because he would remain with them only a little while. Verse 33, troubled over the warning he had given to Peter, that he would deny his Lord thrice. Thus, this little company of believers were disquieted and cast down. Therefore, the Savior proceeded to comfort them. You believe in God? Believe also in me. John 14.1, commentators have differed widely as to the precise meaning of these words. The difficulty arises from the Greek. Both verbs are exactly the same and may be translated with equal accuracy either in the imperative or the indicative mood. Either will make good sense, and possibly each is to be kept in mind. The revised version reads, Believe in God. Believe also in me. Thus translated, it is a double exhortation. The force of it would then be, your perturbation of spirit arises from not believing what God has spoken by his prophets concerning my sufferings and the glory which is to follow. God has announced in plain terms that if I was to be despised and rejected a man that I am to be wounded for your transgressions and bruised for your iniquities. These are the words of Jehovah himself. Then do not doubt them. Believe also in me. I too have warned you what to expect. I have told you that I am to suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and scribes and be killed. These things must be. Then hold fast the beginning of your confidence steadfast unto the end. Be not offended in me, even though I am going to a cross of a criminal. 
But it should be remembered that the Lord was speaking not only to the eleven, but to us as well. Even so, the above interpretation supplies an exhortation which we constantly need. Believe in God, O Christian. Let not your hearts be troubled, for your Father is possessed of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness. He knows what is best for you, and he makes all things work together for your good. He is on the throne, ruling amid the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay his hand. Why then, art thou cast down, O my soul? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swellings thereof. What though trials come thick and fast, what though I am misunderstood and unappreciated, what though Satan roar and rage against me, if God be for us, who can be against us, believe in God, believe in his absolute sovereignty, his infinite wisdom, his unchanging faithfulness, his wondrous love, believe also in me, I am the one who died for your sins and rose again for your justification, I am the one who ever lives to make intercession for you, I am the same yesterday and today and forever. I am the one who shall come again to receive you to myself. And you shall be forever with me. Yes, believe also in me. Well, the above interpretation is fully justified by the Greek. Well, the double exhortation was truly needed both by the eleven and by us today. And while many able expositors have advanced it, yet we cannot but think that the authorized version gives a truer force of our Lord's words here, rendering the first verb in the indicative, and the second in the imperative, believe also in me. What then did Christ mean? The apostles had already by divine illumination recognized him as the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is clear, then, that he was not here challenging their faith. We take it that what our Lord had in view was this. The apostles already believed in him as a Messiah and as a Savior, but their confidence reposed in one who dwelt in their midst, who went in and out among them in a sensible relationship of daily companionship, but he was about to be removed from them, and whom whom they had seen with their eyes and had handled with their hands, was to be invisible to the outward eye. Now he says, You believe in God, who is invisible. You believe in his love, though you have never seen his form. You are conscious of his care, though you have never touched a hand that guides and protects you. Believe also in me. That is to say, in like manner, you must have full confidence in my existence, love, and care, even though I am no longer present to your sight. Discomfort remains for us. This is a faith in which we are now to live, whom having not seen you love, and whom though you now see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. 1 Peter 1 verse 8 Believe also in me, 
Dee also here brings out the absolute deity of Christ in a most unmistakable manner. Here you see plainly that Christ himself testifies that he is equal with God Almighty, because we must believe in him, even as we believe in God. If he were not true God with the Father, this faith would be false and idolatrous, end quote. Martin Luther, in my Father's house are many mansions. Verse 2. The Father's house is his dwelling place. It is noteworthy that the Lord Jesus is the only one who ever referred to the Father's house, and he did so on three occasions first. He had said of the temple in Jerusalem, Make not my Father's house a house of merchandise, John 2.16. Then he had mentioned it in connection with the prodigal son and his elder brother. As he came and drew near to the house, the Father's, he heard music and dancing. Here it is presented as a place of joy and gladness. In John 14, Christ mentions it as a final abode of the saints. The glories and blessedness of heaven are brought before us in the New Testament under a variety of representations. Heaven is called a country. This tells of its vastness. It is called a city. This animates a large number of its inhabitants. It is called a kingdom. This suggests its orderliness. It is called paradise. This emphasizes its delights. It is called the Father's house, which bespeaks its permanency. The temple at Jerusalem had been called the Father's house because it was there that the symbol of his presence abode. Because it was there he was worshipped. And because it was there his people communed with him. But before the Lord Jesus closed his public ministry, he disowned the temple, saying, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Therefore does the Savior now transfer this term to the Father's dwelling place on high, where he will grant to his redeemed a more glorious revelation of himself, and where they shall worship him uninterruptedly in the beauty of holiness. The Father's house has been the favorite term for heaven with most Christians. It speaks of home, the home of God and his people. Sad is it that in this present evil age, one of the most precious words in the English language has lost much of its fragrance. Our fathers used to sing, There is no place like home. Today, the average home is little more than a boarding house, a place to eat and sleep in. But home used to mean, and still means to a few, the place where we are loved for our own sakes. The place where we are always welcome. The place whither we can retire from the strife of the world and enjoy rest and peace. The place where loved ones are together. Such will heaven be. Believers now in a strange country, yea, in an enemy's land. In the life to come, they will be at home. In my father's house are many mansions. The many rooms in the temple prefigured these. 1 Kings 6, verses 5 and 6, Jeremiah 35, 1 to 4, and so on. The word for mansion signifies abiding places, a most comforting term, assuring us of the permanency of our future home in contrast from the tents of our present pilgrimage. Blessed as well as the word many. There will be ample room for the redeemed of the past, present, and future ages. 
and for all the unfallen angels as well. If it were not so, I would have told you. Had there been no room for believers in the many mansions of the Father's house, Christ would have said so. He had never deceived them. Truth was his only object. To this end was I born. And for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. John 18, verse 37. It was because full provision had been made for their complete and eternal happiness that he encouraged them to entertain such high hopes. He would never have brought them into such an intimacy with himself. If that was now to end forever, I go to prepare a place for you. He does not explain how the place in the Father's house should be prepared for them, nor were they yet perhaps able to understand. The epistle to the Hebrews will show us if we turn to it that the heavenly places had to be purified by the better sacrifices which he was to offer, in which all the sacrifices of the law would find their fulfillment. Ephesians speaks similarly of the redemption of the purchase possession, and Colossians, of the reconciliation of things in heaven. Such thoughts are even now strange to many Christians. For we are slow to realize the extent of the injury that sin has inflicted, and equally, therefore, the breadth of the application of the work of Christ. This is not the place to enlarge upon it. But it is not difficult to understand that wherever sin is raised, question of God, and it is done so, as we know, in heaven itself, the work of Christ is bringing out in full his whole character and love and righteousness regarding that which had raised a question, has enabled him to come in and restore, consistently with all that he is, what had been defiled with evil. Thus, our high priest, to use as the apostle does a figure of Israel's day of atonement, has entered into the sanctuary to reconcile with the virtues of his sacrifice the holy places themselves and make them accessible to us. I go to prepare a place for you. We also understand this to mean that the Lord Jesus has procured the right by his death on the cross for every believing sinner to enter heaven. He has prepared for us a place there by entering heaven as our representative and taking possession of it on behalf of his people. As our forerunner, he marched in, leading captivity captive, and there planted his banner in the land of glory. He has prepared a, for us a place there by entering the Holy of Holies on high as our great high priest, carrying our names in with him. Christ would do all that was necessary to secure for his people a welcome and a permanent place in heaven. Beyond this, we cannot go with any degree of certainty. The fact that Christ has promised to prepare a place for us which repudiates the vague and visionary ideas of those who would reduce heaven to an intangible nebula, guarantee that it will far surpass anything down here. I go to prepare a place for you. God never has and never will take his people into a place unprepared for them. In Eden, God first planted a garden and then placed Adam in it. It was the same with Israel when they entered Canaan. And it shall be when the Lord your God shall have brought you into the land which he sware to your father, to Abraham, 
to Isaac and Jacob, to give them great and goodly cities which you built not, and houses full of good things which you filled not, and wells digged which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. Deuteronomy 6, 10 and 11 And what can we say of the grace manifested by the Lord of glory going to prepare a place for us? He will not entrust such a task to the angels. Proof indeed is this that he loves us unto the end. And if I go and prepare a place for you. Verse 3 A special people taken from the earth and arisen Christ must have been a special place. A new thing was to take place. Men brought into heaven. Man was not made for heaven but for the earth, and so place here to till the earth and live upon it. By sinning he lost the earth, and the earth shared his ruin. But by sinning he brought down the Son of God from heaven, who by his descent open heaven is a normal place for those believing on Christ, and so in him, in quote, Malachi Taylor. I will come again. The Lord will not send for us, but come in person to conduct us into the Father's house. How precious we must be to him. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. For Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, and receive you to myself. Notice, not take, but receive. The Holy Spirit is charge of us during a time of our absence from the Savior. But when the mystical body of Christ is complete in his work, is done here, and he hands us over to the one who died to save us, and receive you unto myself, to have us with himself is his heart's desire. To the dying thief he said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. To the church it is promised that we shall ever be with the Lord. For Thessalonians 4 verse 17 it where I am, dare you may be also, for three. The place which was due the Son is a place which grace is given to the sons. This is a blessed sequel to what was before us. Dare Christ said, If I wash you not, you have no part with me. There, it is the Savior maintaining his own on earth and communion with himself. Here, in due time, we shall be with him to enjoy and broken fellowship forever. This had been promised before. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. Here it is formally declared. In John 17, verse 24, it is prayed for. Father, I will the day also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. Here, then, is a divine specific for hard trouble. Here, indeed, is precious consolation for one groaning in a world of sin. First, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Second, the assurance that the Father's house on high will be our eternal home. Third, the realization that the Savior has done 
and is doing everything necessary to secure us a welcome there and fit at home for our reception. Fourth, the blessed hope that he is coming in person to receive us to himself. Finally, the precious promise that we are to be with him forever. But, and mark it well, it is only in proportion as we are troubled by our absence from him that we shall be comforted and cheered by these precious words. Here is solid ground for consolation. Conclusive arguments against despondency and disquietude in the present path of service and suffering. The Savior lives and loves and cares for us. He is active, promoting our interests. And when God time arrives, he shall come and receive us to himself. And whither I go, you know, and the way you know. Verse 4. To understand this verse, it is necessary to keep in mind a connection. Only a very short time before, Peter had asked, Lord, whither goest thou? John thirteen thirty six, And when he replied, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. He rejoined, Why cannot I follow you now? Both of these questions of Peter and they probably express the thoughts of all of the apostles were answered by our Lord in the verses which have just been before us. It is as if he had said, You are troubled in spirit, because you know not where I go. And because I have said, You cannot follow me now, I am going to my Father, to his house of many mansions. Let not, therefore, these fears about me distress you. And as to your following me, as to the reason why you cannot follow me now, and as to the way in which you are to follow me hereafter, know that arrangements must be made for your coming to where I am going. I go to make these arrangements, and when they are completed, I will come and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, that is, where I am going. That is a reason why you do not go with me or follow me now. That is a way in which you are afterwards to come where I am going. And, in other words, thus you know, for I plainly told you, where I go, and the way, in which you are to come where I shall have gone. The whither was to the Father. The way was the process by which they would arrive there. It was not simply the goal, but the path to it. Not simply the where, but to how which Christ had just revealed to them. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not where you go, and how can we know the way? Verse 5. Our Lord has spoken very simply and plainly, yet was he misunderstood. The Father, his house, its many mansions, Christ going there to prepare a place and has promised to come and receive his people to himself and share his place with us. These things were dim and unreal to the materialistic and rationalistic Thomas. His mind was on earthly things. Did the Father's house mean some palace situated outside Palestine? And did Christ going away signify his removing to that palace? He was not sure. And tells the Lord so. Well, if we brought our difficulties to him, 
But let us not forget that the spirit of truth had not yet been given to the disciples to show them things to come. Verse 13 of chapter 16. He has been given to us. Therefore is our ignorance the more excuseless. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Before sin entered the world, Adam enjoyed a threefold privilege in relation to God. He was in communion with his maker. He knew him, and he possessed spiritual life. But when he disobeyed and fell, this threefold relationship was severed. He became alienated from God. His hiding of himself painfully demonstrated. Having believed the devil's lie, he was no longer capable of perceiving the truth. It's a making of a fig leaf, aprons clearly evidenced, and he no longer had spiritual life, for God threat, and the day you eat thereof you shall surely die, was strictly enforced. In the same awful condition has each of Adam's descendants entered this world, for that which is born of the flesh is flesh. A fallen parent can beget not, but a fallen child. Every sinner, therefore, has a threefold need, reconciliation, illumination, regeneration. The threefold need is perfectly met by the Savior. He is a way to the Father. He is a truth incarnate. He is a life to all who believe in him. Let us briefly consider each of these separately. I am the way. Christ spans a distance between God and a sinner. Man would fain manufacture a ladder of his own. And by means of his resolutions and reformations, his prayers and his tears, climb up to God. But this is impossible. That is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 14.12 it is Satan who would keep the exercise center on a self-imposed journey to God. What faith needs to lay hold of is the glorious truth. The Christ has come all the way down to sinners. The sinner could not come in to God, but God in the person of a son has come out to sinners. He is the way, the way to the Father, the way to heaven, the way to eternal blessedness. I am the truth. Christ is a full and final revelation of God. Adam believed the devil's lie. And ever since then, man has been groping amid ignorance and error. The way of the wicked is his darkness. They know not at what they stumble. Proverbs 4 verse 19. Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Ephesians 4.18 A thousand systems has a mind devised. God has made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 29 There is none that understands. Romans 3.11 Pilate voice a perplexity of multitudes when he asked, What is truth? John 18, verse 38. Truth is not to be found in a system of philosophy, but in a person. Christ is the truth. He reveals God and exposes man. In him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What tremendous folly! 
to ignore him. What will it avail you in hell, dear reader, even though you have mastered all the sciences of men, were acquainted with all the events of history, were versed in all the languages of mankind, were thoroughly acquainted with the politics of your day? Oh, how will you wish then that you had read your newspapers less and your Bible more? That with all your getting you had gotten understanding. That with all your learning you had bowed before him who is the truth. I am the life. Christ is the emancipator from death. The whole Bible bears solemn witness to the fact that the natural man is spiritually lifeless. He walks according to the course of this world. He has no love for the things of God. The fear of God is not upon him, nor has he any concern for his glory. Self is the center and circumference of his existence. He is alive to the things of the world, but is dead to heavenly things. The one who is out of Christ exists, but he has no spiritual life. When the prodigal son returned from the far country, the father said, This, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. The one who believes in Christ is passed out of death into life. He that believes on the Son hath everlasting life. Then turn to him who is the life. I am the way. Without Christ men are cane wanderers. They are all gone out of the way. Christ is not merely a guide who came to show men the path in which they ought to walk. He is himself the way to the Father. I am the truth. Without Christ, men are under the power of the devil, the father of lies. Christ is not merely a teacher who came to reveal to men a doctrine regarding God. He is himself the truth about God. He that has seen me has seen the Father. I am the life. Without Christ, men are dead in trespasses and sins. Christ is not merely a physician who came to invigorate the old nature, to refine its grossness or repair its defects. I am come, he said, that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. John 10, verse 10. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Verse 6. Christ is the only way to God. It is utterly impossible to win God's favor by any efforts of our own. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is one God, and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Let every Christian reader praise God for his unspeakable gift, and having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has newly made for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith.